0: This is Ryan Harvey in Baltimore, and you're listening to episode 19 of Hope Dies Last, another tragedy on the Greek islands. Today we have another short episode. Joining me is my good friend Ellie, who's just returned recently to the U.S. after a number of months volunteering on the island of Lesbos in Greece, where she was working in Europe's largest refugee camp, the Moria camp. A few nights ago, the camp was burned to the ground. The following night, it was burned again, taking what was left. It's left 13,000 people sleeping on the streets on the small island where there's been growing right-wing hostility, neo-Nazi attacks, violence, and roadblocks to sabotage efforts to support refugees who've been stuck there. The Moria camp Has become a symbol of Europe's abject failure to take care of the most basic human needs and human rights of refugees who've arrived on the shores of the continent. 70% of the camp's residents were originally fleeing from Afghanistan, a country the United States invaded 19 years ago and has yet to leave. The violence there continues. Refugees continue to pour out of the country. We're going to do a larger episode in the future about the crisis as a whole, but Ellie joins us today to talk about the fire and and the immediate crisis that's facing people on the island of Lesbos. Ellie, thanks for joining me.
1: Sure, thank you for having me.
0: So maybe just start by telling us about what just happened with the Moria camp and the significance of of that camp in Greece and Europe and also in the the Middle East in general.
1: Yeah, so there was a massive fire late Tuesday night, uh, I guess early Wednesday morning, a number of fires actually kind of broke out on all sides of the camp, reducing it to ash. And the roughly 13 to 15,000 people who were living there were forced to flee, you know, lost everything again, and are now homeless, sleeping either on the street or in cemeteries, parking lots. And unfortunately, there's also, we know, confirmed COVID cases amongst them, kind of interspersed throughout and now without, you know, any form of preventive measures in place. And the the state response has been to dispatch riot police. They're you know blocking entry to Mittalini, which is the main town on the island where most people live. And they've declared a state of emergency for the next four months, which I, I fear, is is really just going to lead to increasing militarization and state-sanctioned violence uh, against refugees, as well as an increase in fascist violence, which we're, we're already seeing, actually. And of course, there's, in the past, very much been sort of a, a partnership between those elements, between fascist groups and local police, and we're seeing that happening now as well. I saw reports that there was already
0: some attacks as people were fleeing the camp,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. There have been attacks uh, against people trying to leave the camp. They're basically there are multiple blockades kind of around the the remnants of Moria on the main the main streets going to Mittalini. Some of them are police blockades. Some of them are fascist blockades. Some of them you, you know, kind of mixed. yeah, the the priority seems to be. Keeping refugees from getting into town, and this is very much in line with how the state has kind of dealt with them, particularly since the conservative, right-leaning New Democracy government came to power last July. Yeah, yeah. So it's very, very much in line with, yeah, how how they've shifted policies toward refugees there, right? That very much perceives them as a threat, and certainly has not taken any measures to protect them from this pandemic or really anything else.
0: Maybe you could paint a picture of what the Moria camp is like inside. Like, how are people living inside of there? I think even when I was there, it was over capacity, but it's far. It's been far over capacity. But also, like, how long are people stuck there? What are their rights?
1: Moria's been around, I think, for five years, if I'm not mistaken. It was a space uh, originally built for about 3,000 people. Uh, It's like an old kind of military base. At its peak, which was I think a few months ago, something like 22, 23, maybe 24,000 people were living there in a space built for 3,000. So this was one of the most densely populated places in the world. And people would live in in tents or kind of makeshift shacks, or sometimes you would have an ISO box, which is kind of like a small shipping container with like 20 people crammed in there or multiple households. There was the overflow kind of past the, the camp boundaries, which people refer to as the jungle or the olive grove, which was a bit, I mean, kind of had its trade offs. It was somewhat less densely packed, but of course, you're then even farther away from the already very limited and pretty abysmal water, sanitation, and hygiene infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, it was way, way over capacity, way under under resource in terms of what's supposed to be provided in a refugee camp. It failed to meet a single sphere standard. Those are the internationally agreed upon bare minimum standards for what basic amenities are supposed to be provided in a humanitarian setting in terms of shelter and water and health care and all those things. Yeah, it just failed on all fronts. And this has been the case for years. It's not like, yeah, this is nothing new. So people were living in really precarious situation, and some of them would be languishing there for a year, two years. I've heard of even more than that. the The asylum process there is really difficult to navigate. Rules might change overnight. Since January, a lot of more punitive policies have been rolled out where you know you might have your application rejected for like some some minor error in filling it out that is is actually pretty hard to avoid without routine professional legal counsel deportations have increased i mean pretty much in in all respects it's an incredibly hostile environment to survive in and aside from these sort of structural issues there's also been growing and open hostility from fascist groups on the island. The camp itself is insecure. There were stabbings, some fatal stabbings within the camp. Uh, It's just, yeah, I mean, yeah, on all fronts, really, it's an incredibly difficult place to even survive in.
0: There's still speculation, and, and not that I've seen any confirmation about what caused the fire. But the fact that it happened two nights in a row would suggest that there was a bit of intention to it. Right. This is obviously not the first fire at the camp. It gets lit on fire quite frequently. But this is by far uh, the largest that that has happened. And I mean, it's it's uh, from the pictures. It's it's like it looks like everything is pretty much gone.
1: Yeah, everything's pretty much gone. Yeah. And definitely from people I spoke with who described multiple fires erupting at the same time in different parts of the camp, it, and the fact that there were multiple fires, like the first night, the majority of the camp was destroyed, and then the next two fires pretty much made sure to destroy the remaining sort of pockets that were left. So yeah, it, it does seem this was intentional. I've I've been kind of watching how this event is being covered in in mainstream news outlets, and yeah there there's a lot of speculation about who started the fire? was it done by the refugees themselves? Mm-hmm. and end the, the, they might they might cite local Greek authorities who have very much made up their minds about what happened and are giving a a pretty damning account uh, or, or narrative of refugees having done this themselves and as such being sort of deserving of the consequences.
0: I mean, the, some of the news I've seen suggested that the camp was burned because of COVID cases and because people didn't want to respect orders to quarantine.
1: Yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw similar sort of narratives.
0: Which has no like they say that without any quoting anyone exactly without citing exactly any...
1: yeah. I mean, that's the narrative that again that local Greek authorities are putting out, and they're they're already being like really readily just reproduced in almost yeah. all stories i've seen again in like mainstream yeah. news outlets and yeah i mean this like supposed news is coming out without without ever asking or interrogating like who stood to gain from this and without ever bothering to try to get a single firsthand account from any of the 13,000 people who were displaced <laughs> right. by this fire right and you know the the truth is a lot of people would have liked to see moria burned to the ground <laughs> including refugees right because it's it is a place that's entirely incompatible with human life and dignity and a place no one should have been forced to live in in the first place yeah yeah
0: and it's a prison i mean when when Absolutely. i was in when i was on lesbos 4 years ago moria was a voluntary camp like people were living there but Folks arrived and they made their way to the ferry and they went to Athens and they tried to get to Macedonia and they tried to get further north. It was only after the the EU-Turkey deal that Moria became increasingly involuntary. And at this point, it's, I mean, if you land on Lesbos, you go to Moria, right? Right. Yeah. That's where you stay until you're given permission to leave the island. Or to work, right?
1: Right. I mean, it's it's definitely a de facto prison, and yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's been the case for the last few years, at least. This was a this was not a place people should have been living in, to begin with. Least of all those who have just fled war and violence and persecution and endured, you know, unthinkable horrors in their journey to re- to reach um, supposedly safe shores. The other end of that, you have you know fascists and nativists who have been foaming at the mouth to see Moria burn and yeah. yeah i mean because they they almost explicitly deny the humanity of of the people who live there and perceive the presence of thousands of black and brown refugees from the middle east and africa as a threat to their you know white national identity and who have a, a demonstrated history of open yes. hostility and violent aggression toward refugees and toward those who support them, uh, including of setting fires, <laughs> like as recently as three weeks ago, uh, there was a, a fascist protest right outside Moria, right outside the, the MSF pediatric clinic. They were throwing stones at pregnant women and children trying to access healthcare services. Earlier this year, there was a fire at One Happy Family, which is a, was a, a beloved kind of community center for for refugees. That was also that fire was you know, linked to to fascist groups. So, you know, the, this is very much in line with how we know they they have operated in the past. But the other issue, I I think with this kind of speculation is that it, it kind of I don't know, it kind of like obscures the fact that this fire was a direct and really predictable result of racist and anti-immigrant, anti-refugee policies upheld by the EU and by Greece. And, you know, just their like failure to recognize the humanity in these people and respond in the only appropriate way, which would have been to evacuate Moria and get people to a safe place with appropriate resources with, you know, housing and healthcare and um, a fair and transparent asylum process.
0: And then another factor in the situation at Moria that has kind of managed to just sit back and watch as all this stuff has happened over the last many years is the United States. And I know that 70%, 70% it was estimated right now 70% of the residents at Moria were Afghan refugees. Yeah. Yeah. Um maybe you could talk about who's there and who's arriving sure. right now in Lesbos because when I was there it was it was widely perceived in the media, you know, they were still calling it the Syrian mm-hmm. refugee crisis. It was right. assumed that everyone was Syrian and I was pretty surprised uh you know pretty quickly as we started to have arrivals by by boat that pretty much half and half were Afghans.
1: Right. Yeah. And you were there in 2016, right?
0: Yeah. January, yeah. February.
1: Yeah. So by then, yeah, it was kind of half and half. And and now it's, yeah, something yeah, like between 70 and 80 mm-hmm. percent Afghan. And a lot of people I speak to are really surprised to hear this. They're kind of like, Afghanistan, like, what, why? What's going on there? You know, and it's like, well, it's the U.S.'s longest running war ever in history. Uh, yeah, there's just like yeah, it's a, it's such a blind spot. It's kind of shocking. Um yeah, it, it's overwhelmingly Afghan and people who are coming there are for, from different, I mean, yeah, different ethnic groups in in Afghanistan, but all kind of have the same I, I mean, from what I understand and from what I see in in how the the political landscape of the country looks like now, the Taliban controls more of the country than it did 20 years ago when the U.S. started this war, supposedly to, you know, liberate the Afghans from the Taliban.
0: And and ISIS is in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, They were trying to take advantage of what they perceived as being a weakened Taliban. Even four years ago, this was happening and they were fighting it out. Maybe you could just describe, like, where are these people going and, like, what do you anticipate? I mean... They're out on the streets, literally.
1: Yeah, they are they're out on the streets. From what I hear, there might be these two other camps, I think on the other side of the island that people may be transferred to. It's unclear. There's a large ferry, the Blue Star Ferry, and there might be military vessels coming to the port also to house people temporarily. As I had mentioned, I mean there there are confirmed COVID cases in the group, which is kind of dispersed right now. And I mean the I think it's important to kind of t- kind of talk about how how COVID has been instrumentalized by the state. Um yeah. particularly to enact these, you know, discriminatory, pretty plainly racist policies that it was trying to push through anyways, is trying to implement these things since before the pandemic and now it's been able to do so under the auspices of public health and with just like the, the thinnest of an of legitimacy. So yeah, just to give like, I don't know, a little bit of background with that. In, I guess it was March, the camp was locked down, as was most of the island. Uh, movement was very restricted. And that was actually pretty effective in preventing an outbreak for at least that first few months. And then starting in, I think it was May or June, those restrictions were lifted for, well, in in time for tourism season, for one thing, and for everyone on the island except for Moria. And there was really no public health justification for this, especially given what we know, you know, how we just described Moria, keeping people locked within those conditions is certainly not any way to prevent an outbreak when You know social distancing and meticulous hand hygiene are the things we're saying are the most effective preventive measures that are just yeah a complete impossibility in a place like moria so locking it down is obviously not going to prevent anyone from from the risk of transmission Uh, but that that happened and basically the rest of the island went completely back to normal and tourists were coming, and bars and restaurants and taverns and beaches were packed. And only Moria was still severely locked down, with re- just like mm-hmm. a small number of people permitted to leave every day, only for you know very sp- specific reasons. And you know, predictably, there was a rise in cases on the island because all of these measures had been lifted. So by August, by late August, I think there was like more than 100 cases on the island. The hospital was, the, the f- six ICU beds in the hospital were full. And unfortunately, at the end of July, MSF's isolation center was forced to close by local authorities. They had set up it, basically the only kind of safety net sort of field hospital for Moria refugees should there be an outbreak. It provided testing and isolation and treatment for suspected and confirmed cases. And they got slammed with all of these fines and supposed like urban planning rules that they were violating and tragically were forced to close at the end of July. So there was nothing in place at that point to provide that kind of response for a COVID outbreak within the camp. And last week, September 2nd, was the first Confirmed, we saw the first confirmed case in Moria. And that was uh, a Somali man who had actually gone to Athens. This was actually someone who had been granted refugee status, went to Athens, and things were so bad there, he actually went back to Moria. And this could be like a whole other conversation, because this is like how backwards things have become there right now is that the government has taken away all assistance that refugees get one basically once they get that kind of legal status as refugee you are cut off from housing you're cutting up you're cut off from all forms of assistance so people are finally you know getting the refugee status and they're going to athens and realizing that they're homeless in victoria park and some have actually made have made the decision to come back to moria That's a whole other thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, That's a whole other thing. But that was, that was the first confirmed case was last week, September 2nd. They immediately put the camp on strict, strict lockdown, like no entry, no exit for 14 days, which again, that's not, you know, that's no way to prevent this virus from spreading. In fact, it's like, it's a surefire way for it to spread quite rapidly in a, in a place as densely packed as Moria. And the next day, literally the next day, September 3rd, they signed a contract with a construction company for just shy of 90,000 euros to build a wall around the camp. So turning it from a de facto prison, How much? 95,000 euros, just just shy of like 90,000 euro. Yeah. And right. So this turning it from a de facto prison to an actual prison, with this pandemic going on with no, with a confirmed case. So like knowing, you know, if you have one confirmed case, you know that there are many others within that population. So, I mean, what, like what, what kind of message is that sending? I mean, that was, that would have been a death sentence for many of the most vulnerable people living in the camp to be kind of hermetically sealed off in the inhumane conditions that, that Moria forces one to live in. You know, when a lot of times when, when we talked about, because I mean, everybody who worked there, especially healthcare workers, we were so, so scared of when there was going to be the first confirmed COVID case. Like it was just the dreaded scenario because everybody knew that was going to be the thing, not just for the disease spread, but because everyone knew that was kind of going to be the breaking point one way or another. And a lot of times how we talked about it and how I saw it kind of described was in this, this fire related language, you know, like people would say that Moria Mm. is like this tinderbox for COVID Mm -hmm. that it would spread like wildfire. You know, that was, it's like in the Mm -hmm. English language, that's the most visceral way to communicate imminent peril fire, you know? And I almost feel like for one thing that like, I, I don't know that, that, like maybe this was the only way Moria was ever going to end, you know, like it was never going to die a natural death. And, and also that this, this fire has, I, I hope has somehow like rendered visible the invisible or certainly at least ignored suffering and injustice and malignancy that's become synonymous with Moria.
0: Yeah. And we're going to, for the listeners, Ellie's going to join us again on an upcoming show with some other folks who've been volunteering and working in Lesvos And we're going to have a wider conversation about the refugee crisis, how it's been handled, why a country like Greece has been basically forced by the EU to absorb a huge brunt of the burden, which has also led to situations like what's happening at Moria, where a, a you know a, basically a bankrupt government is being told, you figure it out and take care of it, just keep them away from the wealthier northern countries and whatnot. Obviously, that's similar situation we've seen in countries like Libya, where Italy has made payments to Libya for decades to keep people there and uh, figure out a way to keep them from crossing over. So we'll chat more about that in the future. Ellie, thanks for uh, for jumping on so quickly. Yeah, to thank talk you so much for having me, and this. thanks
1: for talking about this. And um, I look forward to continuing the conversation.
0: Hope dies last is produced by me. Thanks to our guest today, Ellie. If you can afford to donate any money, I would recommend looking up Refugee for Refugees. It's an organization founded by my friend Omar, who's a Syrian refugee based in Lesbos, Greece. He runs the organization, and they do frontline support work there on the island, as well as on the island of Samos. They're called Refugee for Refugees. Thanks for listening, everyone, and stay tuned. I'll have a full-length episode coming next. Hope everyone's taking care of themselves. Peace.